Well, good morning. Welcome to Christ's Legacy Church. We're so glad that you chose to worship with us as we celebrate our 4th of July, birth of our nation, 244. We don't look a day over 200. <laughs> I, I did today do something. I, I invited some very dear friends of mine. They happened, I happened to work with them in the army. I invited our unit ministry team, our UMT, this morning to worship with us, and most of them were able to accept the invitation. I want to introduce them to you this morning. Uh, there, is, there is Chaplain Major Naaman Boma and his beautiful family right back here. Would you just wave, Chaplain? That's right. Chaplain Daniel Omusinde right over here. And our Religious Affairs Specialist, Sergeant Smithers, and their beautiful families. We're so grateful and thankful for you guys to be able to make the long journey up from Fort Sill and from Weatherford area. And uh, it's just, it's a delight to have you here with us today. Over the few short years that I've been in the Army, I've been so pleased to make their acquaintance. They've become very dear friends of mine. We have traveled all over the United States, and when I, I mean all over, I've, I think three, four different states that we've been in together. We've ministered to soldiers. We've ministered to their families. We've counseled. We've conducted funerals. We've trained together. We've sweat together. We've cried together as we were training together. We have, I think they've seen me throw up once <laughs> or twice. Um, we have... We have loved and encouraged one another in the Lord, and everywhere we've gone, we've taken the gospel of Jesus Christ and ministered to men and women in the armed services. And I am here to tell you today that God is alive and well in our nation's military. That's right. We have men and women that love the Lord and are passionate about serving Him and serving this country. And so I'm sure that you can join with us when, when we say, when we turn on the TV and we watch the news, our hearts are broken when we see what's going on in our nation today. The rise of COVID-19 again in Oklahoma, racial pressures, riots, protests. We see so much that is working to try to tear apart our country. Stocks are down. Jobs are lost. We see things like Marxist experiments in blocks of our cities that are doomed to fail before they begin. We see leaders in other states that are allowing abortion clinics and medical marijuana dispensaries to stay open, but forcing the churches to close or pare down. And this is what our freedom has purchased. Christ's legacy, I'm here to tell you this morning that Christ has given us more freedom than these. I'm here to tell you this morning that no matter the freedoms that we feel like we have or we have lost in the nation of America, I want you to know that your freedom has been bought and purchased by a great price. And that you are free indeed, not just as a citizen of the United States, but a citizen of the kingdom of God. I want you to know this morning that no matter the church's struggles, the churches have had to respond to what is going on in our nation and our culture right now. In January of 2020, many churches had a message series entitled something like Seeing 2020 in 2020. (laughs) 2020 vision for 2020. And 90 days later, every one of them wished they could take that back. Because who could have seen closings? Who could have seen what we have seen? Who could have predicted that? Not one of us. And so all of us wanted to take it back. And and right now, many of our churches are struggling not just to come up with the answers to the questions that our nation is struggling with right now, 
Our churches are struggling to understand the questions even to begin to ask. The church right now should be a church that brings unity. A church that stands in one voice and in one heart speaks freedom into our nation and speaks and shares the gospel message with our nation. But instead, many of our churches scratch their heads and have bought into cultural movements and cultural causes, forgetting that the only cause that we need in the United States is singular, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the freedom that he brings to the hearts and lives of the individuals that bend their knee to him and say, God, we need you. We can't do it without you. But instead, we have taken on cultural causes and we've, ha- we've asked our, our people in our churches to fight for social causes, social justice, or racial justice. But I want to tell you this morning that we just need to present the gospel because the gospel speaks for justice for all. Amen. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of my notes. <laughs> Please excuse me. <laughs> You see, the church right now is struggling. And many in the church think that it's a problem with the right or the left. But I'm here to tell you this morning that it's not a problem of the right and left, but it's a problem of the church not understanding right from wrong. The church not understanding the difference between sin and righteousness. The church not understanding between love and hate. I want to tell you this morning that we are called to be one. We're called to allow the Holy Spirit to come into our hearts and lives and fill us with the kind of love that loves everyone and that desires to see justice, that desires to see mercy in the hearts and lives of every citizen of the kingdom of God. In a time where the church needs to be recognized in the world, to be the light of a city on a hill to be the salt of the earth. Unfortunately, the world looks at the church and can't recognize who they are from the rest of everyone else. John chapter 13, verse 35, we find that Jesus tells us exactly how to be recognized among the world. Jesus says, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if... You what? Love one another. I want to tell you something, that we are called to love every person that we come in contact with. But here in this verse and in this context, Christ is making a distinction. He says that you will be recognized and set apart from everyone else by the way that you love Other people in the household of faith. Other people in the church. And here in America, there are so many splits and so many divisions. Even inside of of the movement of Christ. But we are called to be unified and love each other. Love the person on your right and your left. Love the person in the front And in the back of you, love the person that attends the Baptist church and attends the Church of Christ and the Anglican church. Love the Methodists, even though they beat us to the restaurants every now and then. (laughs) We're called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's in that that the world will recognize that we are his disciple. Do you know why that's true? It's not just because it's in the word of God. It's true because it's true. It's true because the rest of the world doesn't love anyone else outside of their group. So when the world sees that we have tremendous love and honor and prefer one another, the world will recognize there's something different about them. But Christ goes on in John chapter 17, starting in verse 20. He explains in his last prayer, 
for, for his disciples and for the rest of the world before he is taken up. He prays something that is pretty amazing. This is the last prayer he prays. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's talking about the disciples. He says, I'm not praying only for the disciples, but for those that follow after them. That's you and me. And he says, he says this, that they all may be one. Say one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Church, can I tell you something? That God, that Jesus' priority, his top number one prayer is that his church, his bride, would be one just as he is one with the Father. And if it's true then, it is true now in these United States of America. Our church must unite with each and every church under the one cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ and declare to the people that we don't, may not understand what you're going through. We may not understand all of your problems, but we know where salvation is. And we know where freedom is. And we know where the chains of bondage can be broken. And it's found at the Calvary, at the foot of Calvary, at the cross of Jesus Christ. Come on, somebody. Jesus desires for us to be united, church, in these United States. We stand not for racial justice, not for social justice, but justice because because God is full of justice. He's not just full of justice. God is eternally justice. It's, it's so hard for us to even imagine. But God is not just all justice. But he is also all love. And it's in him that we receive what we need. It's in him that we live, that we move, that we have our very being. And when we grab a hold of the love that God offers and the justice that God offers, then everything else in our culture will begin to follow suit exactly how God has designed it. The title of the message this morning is The American Condition, and we are in a condition this morning. While the church certainly has its issues, I think we would be wrong not to point out the strengths of our church, not just our church with a lowercase c, but our church with a capital C. Because the church, especially in America, has been the most effective change that the world has ever seen. We've sent more missionaries than any other church. We have, we have given more generous, generously as a nation than any other nation. And the church has struggled, the church has suffered for the cause of Christ. Uh, the missionaries that we have brought in the past two weeks have underscored that more than anyone can imagine. I, I just recently spent a, uh, a meal, sat down with a mission, missionary from, uh, from Europe. And I, I would call out his name, but for the sake that we are on the internet, I, I don't want to illuminate who it was, but we've had him here speak before. And I, I, I said, I said, I'm going to be speaking about America in the next few weeks, but I, I want to sit down with you and make sure that I have a, 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 an opinion and a viewpoint from a missionary that is from America, but maybe not live in America, that loves our country, but can see us for who we are. And so I begin to poke and prod and to ask questions about who we are. He shared with me some interesting stories, and he, he talked with me about how um, COVID-19 was, was regular in other countries because everywhere that they go, they are secluded. Everywhere they go, they are distant away from their families. Everywhere they go, they have to be, be creative in how they present the gospel. They are forced to, 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 to 
form and fashion along with the government, but covertly spread the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. They said that everywhere they go, they have to be cognizant of, of sickness and illness because they're in places that, that you and I would be hard-pressed to find anything to eat, much less anything good to eat. I asked him if he missed um, any of the food from the country that he's from, and he said, no. <laughs> But I want you to know this morning that in spite of everything that, that our country is going through, that there is no other place on the face of this earth that is more free than these United States of America. There is no place in this world that you can go to that has more opportunities and guarantees more freedoms than what you and I possess at this very moment. And those freedoms have been guaranteed to us, not by President Trump, although we are grateful for service, not by our senators, not by our Congress. They have been guaranteed to us by our creator. And so as, as we look and see what this nation is and who we are, I want to tell you something, that although we have problems and although we go through trials and although there is division and confusion, we are still blessed with a great nation under God, indivisible. While there are plenty of opinions about the problems that America and the church faces this morning, I think we would be negligent in our duty not to open the word of God and see what God says to our nation this morning. So if you would, turn in your Bibles with me to Second Chronicles chapter 7, starting in verse 12. And as you're turning there, uh, you may also want to follow along in the Bible app. For our guests this morning, um, if you have the YouVersion Bible app, all you have to do is click on the Bible app, go to the little menu button that says more, click on events and locate Christ's legacy. And you can have all of our notes here today. But as you're turning there, while you're joining us, I want to I give you a little bit of context behind the passages that we're about to read. The first thing that I want to tell you is that the, the Israelites, this is the Old Testament, we turn into Second Chronicles, the Israelites were, were a very proud and wonderful, beautiful nation that, that, that was ransacked by the Babylonians. The Babylonians came in and they ransacked them. They destroyed their cities and took many of them captive, the very best and the brightest captive. They exiled them from their communities, from their cities, from their country. They brought them to build a Babylonian empire. Much later, after the city, cities were ruined, after, after the Israelites were felt lost and spread throughout that region, after they had lost their cultural identity and their places of worship, they were allowed to come back and reclaim their nation. And so they enjoyed time, a golden age, a golden era under King David, who won battles and, and uh, captured the city of, of David and, and claimed it as his own. That's why it's the city of David, Jerusalem. And his son came into power directly after him. King Solomon took it upon, upon himself to rebuild the temple. The very center, the very epicenter of who they were as a nation and their cultural identity. They built this beautiful temple, and if you study, if you look into it, if you look at our garage, it's close to the same size and shape as our garage was. But for King Solomon, it took him 20 years, along with the nation, to construct this beautiful temple and the palace of King Solomon. It had beautiful columns that were from cast bronze. It had beautiful golden implements and, and curtains and all these be beautiful, um, uh, uh, you know, if you're you part of uh, Brother Martin Perryman's Bible study at some point, you have discovered how wonderful and beautiful just the portable temple was. And you could imagine how beautiful this temple that Solomon constructed over a period of 20 years but if you've ever been a part of a building project or built a house, 
then you know all the setbacks and you know all the headaches, but you also remember that moment when you sat down and you signed over the possession of the house. And what a wonderful celebration that is. And here, there is no, this is not no different of a time. The week that the temple was finished, King Solomon decided that they were going to dedicate this temple to the Lord, which is a great move. <laughs> and so he came into the temple. He stood on the very place that they would offer their sacrifices, this huge platform. You could drive a car up and sit a, a car up there and drive it around a little bit. He stood up there in front of the nation of Israel, and he began to pray, and that's the prayer that we would read in Second Chronicles chapter 6. And in response to the prayer, there was fire that was sent down from heaven from God. And it hit the sacrifices and it burned up all the sacrifices. I want you to know today that if we prayed, if I finished my prayer and said amen and there was fire that hit the altars, that would probably do something in here. <laughs> Besides set off the fire alarm, which... Every youth pastor and every children's pastor is guilty of at least one time. Pastor DJ's on his third time. Um, <laughs> thought I might throw that out there. Uh, need to take some of the heat off of me every now and then. But, but here in this moment, fire was sent down from heaven, and it burnt up the offerings. And in response to this, Solomon... And all of his splendor and all of his glory begin to order sacrifices made to the Lord. And the sacrifices that he made to the Lord were 22,000 head of cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. This was not a little celebration. This was a major ordeal where Solomon wanted to recognize and dedicate a temple to the Lord. And so he offered such a tremendous sacrifice. And for the next seven days, the nation of Israel had a festival, a huge party where they celebrated the temple being back among them, God's presence being among them, the glory of God being there located with them. And then the Bible records that Solomon sent the people home filled with joy. Usually what that means, and scholars would debate this, but, but many times kings would send their people home with a, a, what, what they would refer to in the Bible as a date loaf, a raisin cake maybe. And this was because, uh, well, it, it was widely held believe that it was an aphrodisiac. <laughs> they said, it's party time. Let's expand the nation of Israel. So today, at the conclusion of church, no. <laughs> we had Father's Day last weekend, so a lot. Anyway, hmm, Lord bless me. <laughs> and this is exactly where we pick up our text this morning. At the conclusion of the celebration, at the conclusion of the building project, at the conclusion of the the palace being built, one night the Lord met with King Solomon. Verse 12, then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When, somebody say when. when. I shut up the heavens and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. If, somebody say if. Somebody say, if, say, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then somebody say, then say, then say, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their land. Heavenly Father, we welcome you, God, to challenge our hearts to receive your word this morning. Lord, I pray, God, that your word does not fall on deaf ears and a closed heart, but instead, Lord, that you would open our eyes, open our ears, and open our heart to receive your word so that we would be forever changed, never be the same again. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is a famous passage of Scripture that many of us have come to recognize over our time. 
as Christians. On this day, as we celebrate our nation's 244th birthday, many of us in our churches will use this exact passage of Scripture to challenge Christ's people to do what we should be doing each and every day, walking in fellowship with Christ. What our nation needs more now than ever before is not better N95 masks. Our nation doesn't need more defunding the police. Our nation doesn't need more chazzes. Our nation doesn't need more justice or more peace. What our nation needs more now than ever is not to be just a nation one year older, but one nation born again for the cause of Christ. But here we find that, G- that God is telling us something more specifically, more specifically than just that. You see, this promise was made in Scripture to the nation of Israel concerning the temple of God. But some scholars would argue the fact that this nation This promise was just for that nation at that time in that specific context. But I want to tell you this morning and encourage you with this, that our God calls us by his name. That that our New Testament, as we read our New Testament, we find that Paul reminds us that committed followers of Christ Jesus are God's temple for the Holy Spirit that he is fashioned and formed with his own hands and acts. I want to remind you that his promises are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and forever settled in heaven and in our lives and in our hearts. So as we read this text this morning, I want you to know that the promises made for them there and then are for us now and here and for our nation, and for our homes, and for our families, and for our situations. Somebody say amen. Come on. Amen. God calls us out as his people. But some would, as Christians, say, what about Hollywood? If only Hollywood would change, or if only abortionists would change, or only pornographers would change, or only politicians would change, or if only social leaders or other pastors or other churches would change. But God here is not calling those to change. God here is calling his people to change. He's calling you and I to embrace change, to embrace the challenge that he has laid out with a conditional clause, if only my people. Now, here a conditional clause is very simple to understand. Uh, The conditional clause is at least two parties, and here the first party is God that initiates the conditions. And the second party is the nation of Israel and everyone that would be called my name after the nation of Israel. And it's an if-then statement. You can always recognize conditional clauses by if-then statements. If you do this, then I will do this. If I do this, then you do this. And some if-then statements or conditional clauses, oh man, I sound like, you know, those small fine print at the end of a drug commercial, man. I'll tell you what. But the, if the individual clause sometimes will, ha- will not feature an if-then statement, but you can insert it there and it makes sense. And here God gives us a conditional clause. Now, it may surprise many of you to find out that my children know what conditional clauses are. Some of you are saying, well, talking like that, it really doesn't surprise me very much. But but, but, but they they may not know what a conditional clause is, but they sure know how it works. I came home the other day. I've been, many of you have been following us on Facebook or Instagram, and you know that we are in the middle of a youth room remodel. Now, a youth room sounds very small until you find out that it's 2,300 square feet, and we're tiling, and we don't know what we're doing. So, I, I'm, I'm kidding. Pastor Henry knows all about it, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm tired, 
and I'm sore and I'm hurting and I don't, I'm not usually on my knees like this. And I have much more appreciation for Mark Sharp, our local tiler. And, and I came home and I was sore and, and the kids, they, they, I have a four-year-old boy and a a six-year-old girl and one on the way. And, and, and I, I was tired. I sat down in my recliner and the kids wanted to jump all over me. And I, I just, you know, I want to be a good dad, but I just didn't have it in me <laughs> to be a good dad. And so I was, I was about ready to say, hey, just, hey, guys, just give me just a few minutes. But then I feel like the Lord led me to ask him something. I said, let's, let's have a competition to see who can rub daddy's feet the best. So I said, if you would, if you would rub my feet, then tomorrow morning I will take you to the donut place and I'll get you donuts and I'll get you these little juices called fruit shoots. They love fruit shoots and it, and I'll, I'll get you a, I'll get you a, 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 a Ninja Turtle donut and a chocolate long, whatever you want, just please. I felt like I was signing over my birthright <laughs> right there because I was tired and I just needed them to take care of me for a little while. And if you, you may not believe me when you said that, but the, these, these kids, man, their eyes lit up. They had a goal in front of them and they are hard little workers and they were going hard on me. I ended up laying laying down in the floor on pillows as they walked all over my back. And they're going to be doing that the rest of their life, but this time it felt good. Uh, They know what conditional clauses are. Even though it's because when you make a condition and if you stick to the condition, if you do this, then this will happen. Some kids may not know what conditional clauses are because the parents don't stick to the first condition. Well, that's a that's a different sermon. Anyway, let me go back on, onto my notes. This morning, there are many churches that are crying out for God to send revival. But I want to tell you something this morning, and I want to remind you that we don't have to ask God to send revival. Instead, we are called to allow God to revive us because the condition is not, the condition is not asking God for revival, but the condition is, I want to revive you. I want to bring life to you. I want to bring renewal to your lives if you would only follow after me, if you will do these things. And so let's find out this morning what our part is in this revival, what our part is in this moment in time. Number one, we are called to humble ourselves. Somebody say humble ourselves. The person on your right and your left may have had a trouble had trouble saying that word, (sighs) humble. That person probably needs to be brought down to the altar at the conclusion of our message. So if you would, just simply take them by the hand. Many of us know that our God is a God of love, but I want to tell you this morning that our God has a hate life. Our God has a hate life. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, we find out that there are six things that the Lord hates. No, seven that he detests. And number one is a proud look. The very worst thing that you can do before an almighty God is have a proud look. If you don't look around right now, but some people can strut while they're sitting down. You know what I'm saying? You know what I mean. You know what I mean. They can look proud no matter what is going on in their lives. They can deal with pride. See, we enjoy blessings as Christians, as people, as a part of the body of Christ. But I want you to know that Christians can struggle with pride greater than any other people on the face of this earth because as Christians, we fall into a cycle of pride. God loves us and we love God. And so he allows us to experience blessings in our lives that cultivate peace and prosperity that add to us and don't take away. And as we enjoy those blessings in our lives, somehow pride works its way into it. And we begin to believe for ourselves that we have earned or deserve somehow the blessings that we have 
through Christ. And then, as we have that pride that wedges in between our, us and our relationship with God, God begins to withhold his blessings and we begin to lose the peace and the security that he brings to us. And it's this vicious cycle as we fall away, then we realize what we've done and we run back to God. But this morning, God is calling us to break this cycle of pride. Stop separating yourself from God because of pride. First Peter chapter 5, verse 5 says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Can you imagine praying and God not hearing you? Can, can you imagine coming to the Lord with everything that you have and God says, I don't have time for you right now. Can, can you imagine being so sincere in your need but talking and feeling like your prayers are hitting the ceiling? Many of you listening to what I'm saying right now and maybe joining us online can't imagine that because that's something that you've dealt with. That's something that maybe you're going through right now. And I want you to know that it's a horrible thing to be resisted by Heavenly Father that loves you so much, but He will. Not because He likes to play games and manipulate you, but because we like to play games and try to manipulate Him. Because we want what we want, but we're not willing to submit ourselves under His Lordship of Christ Jesus. We are called this morning to come to Him God would never turn away someone that comes to him with a broken and contrite heart. So that if you come to him in sincere humility, you are guaranteed to be heard. You are guaranteed to have an audience with an almighty God that loves you and you'll be received and heard and cared for. God desires for us to humble ourselves. Can God humble us? Yes, he can. Should we pray that God humble us? I'm going to say no. <laughs> I don't want none of that. I don't want that in my life. I want to come to him out of my own self because I want to remind us that the Bible tells us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But I don't want to wait till one day. I want to do that now when it's my choice. We are called not as a nation, but as a people of God to humble ourselves. Christ's legacy, if you struggle with pride, here's how you might identify. Here's how you might realize that you're struggling with pride. If you are able to assess everyone else's problem around you and know exactly what to do and exactly what to say, but your life seems to be falling apart, you might be dealing with pride. I don't know. It might happen. It kind of sneaks up on you. When you get angry while you're watching the news and want to tell everybody what to do, but you have your own divisions in your family. You have own divisions and people that you don't want to even sit by in church. You might be struggling with pride and not even know it. We're called to repent of our pride. Number two, we are called to pray. Somebody say pray. That's as close as some of y'all gotten to pray in this whole week. <laughs> That wasn't even my notes. That was for free. That was a reflex. If I asked some of us to raise our hands to identify if our prayer life was satisfactory to our own expectations, not just to God's, but our own expectations, I would suspect that a large majority, if not entirely, none of us would move, but every one of us would leave our hands directly by our sides as if not to call attention to us. Because prayer seems difficult. It seems difficult because it is foreign to our human nature. 
But as Christians, it's exactly what we are called to do. We feel ashamed and betrayed by our own efforts as we pray because we realize that we don't pray not just like we should, but as often as we feel we should. But what would happen if we lived our lives like we actually believe that prayer changes things? Would your life change? For many of us, we would have to admit that the problem with prayer is not a problem of time, but actually a problem of trust. Somebody say trust. Say it again. One more time. Somebody didn't even say it just because you don't even trust me. The problem of prayer is a problem of trust. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 through 6 tells us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. Here we find another, another conditional clause, another promise that we are given that if we trust, if we acknowledge, then he will direct our paths. You see, you don't know where to go, you should pray. You don't know what to do, you should pray. You don't know what to say, you should pray. If you know all those things, you ought to still pray. Because I want to tell you this morning, ladies and gentlemen, that our God loves you and wants to correspond with you with an active and vibrant prayer life. He desires to give you a life that is not just a regular life, but a life that is more abundant, and we can find that more abundant life through an active and open and sincere communication with our Heavenly Father. You see, prayer is the natural position for all those that are born again in Christ Jesus, and prayer is not a weapon of the enemy against us. Some people need that heard one more time. Let me explain that and break that down. Some people feel like prayer is a weapon that the enemy uses against us. When we come to the Lord and we pray, we feel guilty because we didn't pray enough last week. We didn't pray yesterday or or, or we're not satisfied with our prayer life. Or when we pray, our prayers don't feel like they're being answered. And so we, when we pray, we get filled with guilt We feel ashamed because we don't know what words to say. We don't know how to say them. And so the enemy takes the weapon that is made to use against him and beat him over the head. He takes that weapon away from us and begins to work it over our head. But I want want to tell you this morning that greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. And prayer is our weapon against the enemy of our lives, John 10, 10, and not the other way around. So people of Christ's legacy and people of Christ's church, I want to remind you that we are called to be a prayerful people coming back to Christ through prayer. Thirdly, we are called to seek his face. What exactly does it mean to seek God's face? The writer of this book uses this term some 30 different times throughout his writings, and it simply means this. It means to passionately pursue the Lord's presence, to look, to have a deeper relationship with him, to do everything we can to pull away from the evil around us and embrace the things that please God the most. He's calling us to go deeper. Just the other day, I took my kids to the pool, and and my my kids are are just nearly polar opposites in 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 their their desire to do exciting things. My daughter, six years old, she will not back down. She has little dog syndrome. She thinks she's way bigger and older than she is. I don't know where she got that from. And she will jump into that deep end, and she will drown herself trying to swim to the other side to prove that she's big enough to do it. My son, on the other hand, will require his floaties and to sit in the baby pool to get nice and ready to be in the big pool. And then the big pool is still the place in the pool where he can still stand up. That's who he is. See, 
even though they're polar opposites, they're still my children. But I, 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 want, I want for us here at Christ's Legacy to have this deep desire, this deep passion to jump completely in to the presence of God, to know who he is, to search him in the scriptures, to know who he is in a better and deeper way. Some people in this place have been hurt by broken relationships. At one point in time, perhaps with God or perhaps with a partner, or with perhaps a spouse or with children, you jumped completely into the relationship. You had full faith, hope, and trust into the relationship. And you feel on some degree and some level that they disappointed you. And the, the truth is, is that they probably did. Because I, I want you to know this morning that each and every person in the face of this earth at one point in time can disappoint you. But our God will never disappoint you. Our God desires a relationship with you so deep and so intense and so filled with love that he will never leave you, never forsake you. There's not been one person that has ever regretted a sincere, committed relationship with Christ. There's not one person on a deathbed that says, I wished I hadn't followed Jesus as much as I did. There's not one person on the face of this earth that has ever regretted giving their heart and soul to the master of all creation. What are you waiting on? What are you waiting on? Well, I did that back then, and, and by God, I, 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 I did it then, so it's good enough today. But I want you to know something, that it's not good enough today, that we are called to go deeper than whatever you've been before, that God has something new for you today. His blessings and mercies are new every morning. And God wants to show you and teach something to you. Whether you're nine years old or 99 years old, our God is able and willing to take you deeper than you've ever been before. I want to challenge us at Christ's Legacy to do that, to find a deeper place with God. So stop waiting. Finally, we're called to repent. Somebody say repent. This word repent is featured in this text, although it doesn't actually say repent. In the Hebrew, this word is featured as shub, as shub. And it means something very specific, which literally means, in Hebrew, it means to go back to where you started from. To go back where you started from. Jesus tells us this better than anyone else in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 4. As he speaks to the Ephesian church, the church in Ephesus, he says, nevertheless, I have this against you. He said, you've done so good, and you've done good here, and you've done good here, and you've worked here, and you've called out people that were false prophets here, false teachers here. But this one thing I have against you, and if you don't fix this one thing, then you can't be my people. He says this. He says that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, you have fallen out of love, my church. Repent and do the first work or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from this place unless you repent, unless you go back to where you started. Christ's legacy, church. As a people of God, not a people of this nation. Not if those there will do it. Not if that other church will do it. If these people in this room and everyone in the sound of my voice that loves the Lord with all of their heart would simply go back to where you started from with your relationship with the Lord. Do you remember what it was like when you first started? That's the, that's the equation. That's what we're called. That's what we're challenged to do. We're challenged to remember and to, to do those first works again. Do you remember what it was like to kneel at the altar and to pray and ask the Lord to be the Lord of your life? Do you remember what it was like to stand up and to be as free as you've ever felt in your life, more free than what you've ever thought you could be? Do you remember what it was like to walk home or to drive home and not to have guilt 
and not to have shame in your life any longer? Do you remember what it was like to be excited about coming to church, about seeing God's people? Do you remember what it was like to love and be filled with energy and passion to minister to others that God has called you to minister to? That's your first love. That's the love that he's called us to. He's called us to remember and to do those things again. Christ's legacy. These things don't go away with age. They don't go away because we've fallen away from... They, they, they go away because we have fallen away from our first love. They go away because of sin and apathy towards our relationship with the Lord. They go away because of familiarity. What happened to standing in awe of an ever-present God and anticipating what he wanted to do with our life. Would you stand with me all over this place this morning? This conditional statement that we find in the Bible to humble ourselves, to pray, to seek his face, and to repent is our conditions to be met. But when we, as a people of God, meet those conditions, God guarantees us that he will hear from heaven. Some people in this place, you've prayed, you've prayed, you've prayed, you've prayed, you've prayed, you've prayed, and you don't feel like God has heard you, that God has received your prayers. I want to tell you something, that that these four these four things, when we do those things in our lives, that he'll hear you. It says it in his word. That's his promise to you, to your family, to your children. This is promise to your grandparents. He'll hear you. He'll forgive your sins. Do you want to walk around knowing that your sins are forgiven, that you're right with God? He will. He'll forgive them all. The Bible says that he'll cast them as far as the east is from the west, never to be held against you again. Don't wait. Humble yourself. Repent. Seek his face. Pray. And your sins will be gone. And finally, he'll heal our land. Do you want healing in your body? Do you need healing in your relationships? Do you need healing for your finances? Do you need healing for your communities? I know that we need healing in our nation. It's not when our nation humbles themselves and prays and seeks his face and repents. It's when our church does. It's when we as people of God do. Do you want revival? Here's how revival starts. You draw a circle on the ground and you say, God, I want this circle to experience revival. And then you step in it and say, God, bring revival here now in me, in my life, in my family, in my house, in my church. And you'll experience it. People of God, this is not five minutes down at the altar. It's a lifestyle of prayer. It's a lifestyle of seeking his face and living in humility and love for one another. It's a lifestyle of repentance. So I challenge you this morning. I challenge you. This conditional promise is yours and mine if you'd only accept it.